We have a, a great text this morning. Uh, if you're a visitor with us, if you're a visitor with us, you know, we, we march through the text as it comes. And uh, so this is, this is the text before us today. Uh, I, I think of this text as a vegetable text. And here's what I mean by that. When I was a kid, I didn't like to eat vegetables. And uh, my mom and dad would say, you need to eat your vegetables. And I would say, but I don't want to. And they would say, you need to eat them. Why? Because they're good for you, right? And someone, as we were thanking God this morning, someone thanked God for his word, right? And sometimes when we think about the things we're thankful for in God's word, we, you know, we put them on magnets and stick them on our refrigerator. And these verses aren't often verses that you see on a refrigerator when you go into someone's house. But if we're going to be thankful for God's word, we need to be thankful for all of it. Because here's the thing, God loves us. And sometimes it's just by faith we have to believe that if it is in God's word, then he means it for our good and our joy. Even if we don't understand it, even if we have to wrestle with it, even if it, if it makes us angry, we have to believe at some level that if it's in God's word, then it is good. And so we want to think about that this morning as we look at this text. So pray with me. Uh, I need your help. You know, I've, I'll be honest with you, this was convicting for me. And so I'm just a, I'm just a vessel, all right? So I'm going to spread and pass my conviction along to you this morning, all right? Let's pray together, and then we'll look at the text. Father, you are good and again, sometimes only by faith, uh, it's only by faith that we can say that we believe that if we see something in your word, then it must be good for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would, through your spirit, that you would work in our hearts, that you might challenge us, that you might encourage us, that you might help us to live in this messy world as followers of Jesus that seek to honor you and look to you in hope. So Father, work in our hearts. Would you take a few moments quietly, just, you don't, don't say anything out loud, but just pray for, uh, for your own hearts that God would speak to you this morning. And then would you pray for me, just again, silently, that God would speak through me. Well, Father, again, you are good, and we know you are good because you sent your Son to take the curse that we deserved on himself, that by looking to him, we might be your sons and daughters through faith. So, Father, in your goodness, would you work in our hearts? And, Father, having worked in our hearts, we pray that a little bit more of Jesus might come out of us as we relate uh, to one another, even in difficult situations. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. On their 50th wedding anniversary, a couple was being interviewed, and they summarized what they felt like was the secret to 
to having a happy marriage for, for 50 years. And the husband said this, he said, I've tried never to be selfish. After all, there is no I in the word marriage. And his wife said, for my part, I've never tried to correct my husband's spelling. <laughs> I mean, if only marriage were that easy, right? If only if marriage were, were that easy. If you uh, are or you have been married, you know, though, that it's not. It's not easy. Marriage is the, the greatest and most terrible institution on earth. As Mike, Mike Mason in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, uh, he said that marriage is the lifelong cauterization uh, of an ego. You know, when you take a flame to something and seal it, cauterize it. He said marriage is a lifelong cauterization of the ego as the two become one. And he said it is, uh, he, he said that all of life in one way or another uh, is humbling, but there's nothing like the experience of being humbled by another person, by the same person day in and day out. He said it can be exhausting, unnerving, infuriating, and disintegrating. There is no suffering like the suffering involved in being close to another person. You ready to get, anyone ready to get married? I can marry you right now. Come on. No, but then he says this, but neither is there any joy nor any real comfort at all outside of intimacy, outside the joy and the comfort that are wrung out like wine from the crush and ferment of two lives being pressed together. Marriage is the greatest joy, but it's also the most terrible thing because in it you come face to face with who you are. And you're daily reminded of what God needs to do in you. Uh, just to translate all of that, it's hard, right? It's hard. Well, in our text today, Peter's not writing a marriage manual uh, per se. Uh, at least not in verse 1, where in verse 1, he's thinking primarily, though not exclusively, about what we might call mixed marriages. That is, marriages between believers and unbelievers. Now, down in verses 5 and 6, he's going to link in Christian marriages as he talks about Sarah and, and Abraham. So we can't restrict his intent and his meaning to only mixed marriages. But in the overall context of what Peter's been doing in the, the, uh, in the previous chapter and then in this section, he's continuing to explore these places where Jesus followers interface with the world around them and with the unbelieving world around them in particular. And so in turning his attention to marriage, as he's done before, the focus of the believer in these settings is missional. It's missional. So Peter isn't, isn't disagreeing here with other places in Scripture where we, uh, you know, we see these marriage texts which are grounded in theology. But the focus for Peter is not theological as much as it is missional. In other words, Peter isn't necessarily thinking about the foundation of marriage, but the, the purpose of it in one sense, missionally. So remember what Peter said in chapter 2. Do those who have been born again, those who have a new identity in Christ, born to a new hope, do they have any continued allegiance to the government? Peter says, yes, 
They do, whether good or bad, Christian or non-Christian, because as they obey, Peter has said, the gospel becomes compelling to the rest of society around them. Or last week, do slaves have, uh, have any continued allegiance to their masters, whether good or bad? They do. Maybe their masters will be saved. And again, I appreciated last week the way Will differentiated slavery in this time versus the, the chattel slavery that we think about in the UK and uh, in the United States in, in, in the past. Do slaves rise up against their masters? They, they don't. Because again, Peter's focus is in saying that maybe, just maybe, their masters would be saved and come to faith uh, as, uh, in the same way that Jesus' unjust suffering led to our salvation. And here today, what about spouses who have come to faith? Do they leave their marriages? And to that, Peter asks the question, might their spouses be saved if they didn't leave, but instead stayed and lived like Christ in their midst? Now, Make no mistake, I want to be really clear, as difficult as marriage is, a mixed marriage between a believer and an unbeliever is exponentially more difficult. And this is why we say, at the very least, it is unwise for a believer to marry a non-believer. Marriage is hard enough. You need to at least start out on the same page with the same values, but I think God takes it even a step further by telling believers in the scriptures not to seek out a marriage to a non-believer. Now that's another sermon for another day. But this scenario in Peter is different. It's different. Here we seem to have a situation in which a wife and a husband have both heard the word, the gospel, preached. And the wife has obeyed or believed and the husband has not. So in verse 1, he says, Wives, be subject to your husbands so that even if some do not obey the word. That's Peter's way of thinking about belief. And so you have a husband and a wife, and one has heard the gospel and responded, and one has heard it and not responded. And so in light of this new identity in Christ, is the spouse's new attachment to Christ's family, has that supplanted his or her attachment to their spouse? What is the person to do in that scenario? Especially since, culturally speaking, never mind relationally, this would have made life very hard for a believing spouse, especially a wife in this particular instance. Incidentally, It's difficult for us to appreciate how revolutionary Peter's words are in this particular cultural environment. Remember, though, Peter's primary concern in the previous chapter and in this one is not cultural reform. Peter's primary concern is salvation. That's why he writes the way he does. And so, Even the fact, we have to recognize culturally, even the fact that Peter would write to a woman is unheard of culturally. This would have been subversive in Peter's day. 
And I think he does this because women, just like slaves and citizens before, are in a culturally vulnerable position in this particular day and time. And so this makes their situation kind of a case study of what Peter's been talking about in the book in terms of the way that a Jesus follower is a cultural minority in this world. And they live as a stranger and alien in this world. But listen, make no mistake, in writing to women in this way, he is giving them a moral agency and a responsibility that the culture did not afford to them. A woman is called here to make a moral choice to obey this text or to not obey it because she's an image bearer, because she fears God, not because she has a husband. She's called to, to obey this text because she loves the Lord. And so Peter's words here elevate a woman by linking her with a higher authority, by linking her directly to God in terms of authority. And that was culturally unheard of. That was culturally subversive. So even as Peter writes, he's not out to reform, but he is taking shots at the culture of his day. Culturally, in Peter's day, women didn't have a lot of rights. They were expected to take on the religion and even the friendships of their husband. They weren't allowed to find any fulfillment outside of their husbands. And so imagine now a woman becomes a Christian and she has a new authority and she has a new family. This is culturally subversive and it could lead to a backlash, couldn't it? From her husband uh, who's driven by his ego. And not only that, in a culture in which prosperity was tied to pleasing the gods and pleasing the gods was tied to everyone living uh, orderly lives. In, in other words, living the lives that they had been placed in. It could bring shame and maybe blame upon a husband in that particular day. So what's a Christian wife to do in this instance? How is, to, how is she to respond? For husbands, the dilemma is slightly different. Uh, in this particular culture, if a husband had total control over the worship that took place in his house, if he had total control over it, then a Christian husband had the power to forbid any kind of idolatrous worship in his home. He, he could exercise what we, what we might call it positive power over his wife and saying you can only worship Yahweh. You can only worship the God of the Bible. And so he could in that way create a kind of contrived obedience uh, to Jesus. But is the gospel about exercising power over people? In other words, is forcing an external and hollow obedience to Jesus, is that the best that a Christian husband can do in this particular instance? What if the husband instead leveraged his power in the home to serve his wife? If she was only playing a Christian because she had to culturally, is it possible that that kind of love and service would be transformative for her? 
See, that's Peter's hope. So don't miss Peter's missional focus. People might be compelled to salvation. They might be transformed by their believing spouses as their believing spouses live like Christ in front of them. So let's consider what Peter says to these women and men. And then I I think by extension to us, because what we see here in principle is an ingredient that is found in every fulfilling and transforming marriage. So let's take a look at these each in turn. Verses one to six, here's the command. Likewise, wives, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. The command is to submit to your husband. Uh, Women, Peter is saying to you, wives, uh, Peter is saying to you that your desire should be that your man, your husband would feel that you are with him insofar as your ultimate allegiance to God would allow it. Wives, your desire should be that your husband would feel that you are with him insofar as your ultimate allegiance to God allows. That's what Peter means here when he says, be subject to your own husbands. It is to orient yourself under the authority of another. That's what the word submit means. And it's a statement more about attitude or orientation than it is action. Even though later in verses 5 to 6, it's directly linked to obedience. Now, stick with me because, okay, this is the command and we're going to think about it together. All right? Again, remember, Peter is calling for this for the sake of mission. Verse 1, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey, they're not believers, they might be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. So he's thinking for the sake of mission, but his ground is the same as Paul's, let's say, in Ephesians chapter 5. Where in Ephesians 5, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to husbands in all things. For Paul, who is grounding this command more in theology, this submission becomes a picture of the way that the church relates to Christ. Christ leading in love by giving himself and the church responding to that love. Responding to that love. So Christian marriage is ultimately a gospel witness. It's a witness of the way that Christ gave himself for his church and his church responded to that love. And this is what Peter desires. That as the wife lives out and that word uh, respect, when he says that you're Uh, that he may see that you're respectful and pure conduct. Uh, That word there is purity. And so as the wife lives out a whole of life Christian character, in spite of the discomfort that it might create in the home, the husband might be one to faith. Not as a result merely of hearing his wife preaching to him over and over again, which in that day might be uh, seen as insensitive culturally, but as he sees her living out a life of reverent devotion, listen, to Christ. 
As he sees that, it might be transformative in his life. I remember a pastor years ago talking to university students that would go to university and they would be converted. Uh, and they, all they would want to do is go home and share the gospel with their family. They'd go home and every chance they got, they would hammer their family with the, the gospel message. And it would create discord and, uh, and, and, and a challenge in the home. And, and he told them, he, he said to us, he said, he said, look, he said, you share the gospel once and then you do the dishes or then you mow the garden, right? And what he meant was you share the gospel once and then you start living it out and let that work. And this is what Peter says, wives, if you're in this situation, if you're in this situation, you, you, you orient yourself in this way so that rather than constantly hearing the refrain of the gospel, your husbands might see it in action and that they might come to faith. And again, notice the motivation. This is not to be driven by fear of a husband. It's not to be driven by social norms of the day. Again, in verse 2, the word respectful in the ESV is the word reverence. It's a devotion to Christ. This is a divine calling that God places on this woman. So she is motivated, like all believers in the world, by an awe and a love and a devotion to God. And incidentally, this is what limits her submission to her husband. Just like citizens orient themselves under government as long as it doesn't forbid what God uh, requires or requires what God forbids. In the same way, the wife orients herself in this way insofar as she is able to do that in conscience before God. So, wives are never called to follow their husbands into sin. Because they have a higher devotion. They have a higher allegiance. They have a higher authority. And so they orient themselves in that, in that space insofar as they are able. And I think not following husbands into sin also includes the sin of abuse. I want you to hear me. Peter never expects wives or husbands but wives, because that's mostly the way it happens. Peter never expects wives to stay in an abusive household. Let me just say a few words about this. Abuse, as we think about it, is defined as any action that intentionally harms or injures another person. And here's the key in an effort to control them. To control them. Right? We would affirm that all abuse is sin, full stop. But we wouldn't necessarily say that all sin is abuse. There is marital sin, isn't there? Listen, if you're married today, guess what? You married a fallen person and they're gonna sin. And you are a fallen person and you are gonna sin. And so what makes abuse abuse is that element of seeking to control through some kind of harm or, or, or other aspect. And so we work through marital sin because that's common to all of us as fallen humans, but we do not tolerate abuse. And thankfully, 
Unlike uh, Peter's day, thankfully, we live in a day today where there is a civil recourse for husbands or wives that are being abused. Uh, in, In the ministry of God, we have a government that is willing to step in in cases of abuse. And so we don't tolerate abuse. Abuse is a fundamental distortion of the Trinitarian picture that marriage is supposed to mirror. It's exactly the opposite of what we see when we look at the Godhead. Father loving the Son, loving the Spirit. It's exactly the opposite. There is no abuse or coercion in the Trinity. And this is why, incidentally, marriage is not the same as slavery. Perhaps you've heard that before. This is why marriage is not the same as slavery. No person has the right to control or own another image bearer. And so slavery in any form is sinful and unjust on its face because it exerts a right that it has no right to exert. But marriage is a God-ordained institution created that we might all, husbands and wives, experience tangibly, though imperfectly, the love that exists within the Godhead. And so Peter says here, by submitting, and again in verse 1, he doesn't say wives submit to every man in general. He limits it, submit to your own husband. And in doing that, he says that a wife takes her place in a line of other women who did the same and are called holy. As we look down in verses 3 and 4 and 5. In offering something of immense value to God. In verse 5. He says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 5 links this way of ordering marriage to Christian marriage too, as Sarah related to Abraham. And I don't think Peter has any particular instance in mind There, I think it's the general and traditional understanding of the day was that this was the way that Sarah related to Abraham. But this gentle and quiet spirit that he talks about in verse 3, where he says, Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which which in God's sight is very precious. That gentle and quiet spirit that arises from a woman's new identity in Christ. This is her inward adornment. What is new about her coming out. It is said to be precious and valuable to God. Now look, submission doesn't mean that a woman can't share what's on her mind. It doesn't mean that a a woman isn't supposed to, to, to speak. The term gentle there is related to the word for meekness which is a a, a power that is under control. It is a a refusal to insist upon one's rights. When it's used in the New Testament, it's most often used of Jesus and the way that he lived. And so listen, ladies, 
What, what Peter is saying here is that God isn't impressed with your outer fancy wear. He's not saying you can't wear jewelry. He's saying that God isn't impressed with your outer, uh, outer wear, your outward appearance, but with Christ-likeness as it is lived out. And look, our society belittles that. Our society says that that is invaluable or that that is not valuable. But God, Peter tells us, sees it and applauds it. Not because God wants to keep women down, but because he loves his son. He loves Jesus. And he loves seeing Jesus' character come out of us. He loves seeing Jesus in you. But we'll come back to this a little more uh, after we look at verse 7. If you're feeling good about yourselves, men, hold on. Here we go. Men, husbands, your desire should be that your wife would feel that she is your most important person. Husbands, your desire should be that your wife would feel that she is your most important person. This is what Peter means by the commands to live with your wife in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. When he says live with, those words live with carry an all of life scope. It encompasses every aspect of a marriage from the dishes to putting the toilet seat down to the bedroom in every aspect. Husbands, I don't mean to be, to, to be crass here, but, but your wife does not exist to fulfill every one of your urges, whatever they might be, whenever you might feel them. And so we need to stop pretending that that's the case. This command compels us as husbands to understand our wives, to seek out insights about them that enable us to treat them with loving and considerate care. That's what it means to live with your wife in an understanding way. Showing honor means that we treat our wives as valued and important daughters of God in what we do and in what we say. I mean, I'll be honest, I am sometimes shocked at what I hear uh, come from the mouths of men about their wives. And sometimes from Christian men. Listen, all of our words have power. Men, your words and actions can build up and they can tear down. And husbands here are called to leverage our position, to bless our wives, not to take advantage of them for our own gain. When Peter calls the, the wife the, the weaker vessel, that's not an insult. It's a vessel of honor. There is a sense, generally speaking, in which a wife is physically weaker and maybe socially more, more vulnerable than her husband. But husbands, your wife should never have to worry that you are not on her side. She should feel that you are bringing all of your weight of power to bless 
and encourage her. Again, incidentally, you'll notice, culturally speaking, husbands are the only group that are addressed in this particular section from Peter. They're they're the only group that is in a position of power that are addressed, uh, addressed here. Masters aren't addressed. Government officials aren't addressed. Husbands are addressed. And if there is any doubt in your mind that God forbids any kind of husband-initiated domestic abuse, it should be put to rest by verse 7. God is not misogynistic. He would never command husbands to behave in this way if he were. Full stop, without any exception, abuse is completely at odds with verse 7. Completely at odds. Now notice that he gives two reasons for uh, husbands to treat their wives in this way. He says, first, because they are co-heirs with you in grace. Now this was incredibly subversive culturally. What Peter does here is he raises women to the same level of dignity as men, as children of God. Peter affirms that women, though they're called to submit, are not unequal with men in dignity and value. So Peter here affirms what Paul says in Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Your wife is an equal sharer in the gift of grace. If we think about it, maybe from the other side of the coin, husbands, you are just as much in need of God's undeserved favor as your wife. You're no better than she is. Husband, listen, you are not Christ to your wife. You are not Jesus to your wife. She doesn't go through you to get to him. You are like Christ only as you give yourself for your wife the way Christ gave himself for the church. Now don't miss that. We're not the Taliban. The Taliban gets it wrong because they bleed uh, roll into dignity. And they say because the role is different, a woman doesn't have dignity. That's not what Peter affirms. Peter and Paul and Jesus and the New Testament affirm same dignity, different role. More frighteningly though, is the second reason that Paul gives for husbands behaving in this way. First reason, uh, live with your wives, showing honor to them since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. The second reason, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Even more scary, isn't it, men? Giving in to those natural impulses that we might have to dominate and exploit our wife for our own good or for our own uh, gain puts us at odds with God. It makes God our adversary. God opposes us. Because God is seen throughout Scripture as the one who fights for the powerless. And listen, I see this. 
I see this far too often and it really makes me angry. Guys, disobeying the clear commands of Scripture like this and living for themselves first and then pulling rank and telling their wives to submit. Listen, nowhere, nowhere does Peter give you husbands the responsibility to make sure your wife submits. Nowhere. It isn't there. And if you're playing trumps and pulling rank on your wife, guess what? Peter says God is playing trump on you. He's pulling rank on you. And he is now your adversary. And so I'll be honest with you. Uh, Peter is saying here, husbands, do your job. You live the way God's called you to live. I mean, we've got enough in this one verse to keep us busy for a lifetime. He says, you be the kind of man that your wife longs to walk beside. Yeah, again, I've noticed over the years that quite often the men who talk the most about submission in marriage are the men who look the least like Jesus. Men, we need to stay in our lane and we need to do what God has called us to do. So how do we pull this off? I mean, some of you might be thinking, have you ever met my husband? Have you ever met my wife? And I don't mean that flippantly. Some of you have husbands that aren't believers or who say they are and they don't live it out. Some of you have wives that that treat you uh, in a horrible way. Vice versa. I mean, we, we know these situations. And listen, here is the, this is the inconvenient truth of these verses. And I don't know any other way to say it. Because whether we obey or disobey these commands has nothing to do with our husband or wife. The only way we can pull this off is if we are grounded in a hope that is bigger than our husband or wife. Look, I don't know, again, I'm just going to say it the best way I know how. If you're married, one day we, not just you, me included, one day we will give an account to God for how we lived out the commands that we see in the text. And when we do, God is not going to give us time to talk about what our husband or wife did or did not do. And again, I want to be really clear. Abuse is an exceptional issue. That's another discussion for another day. But when we stand before God against this bar that Peter has given us, He's not going to give us any time to talk about what our husband or wife did or didn't do. Our call is to be these kinds of husbands and wives, irrespective of how our spouses respond. And that's why, again, as I went through the text, I tried to speak in terms of desire, because I may rightly desire that my husband or wife feel a certain way. Or respond to me in a certain way. But the only thing I can control is what I do. Is my attitude and my response. The only thing I can control is trying to be the husband that God has called me to be. That's all I can control. And so Peter is holding us accountable for what we do here. And again, there are good and bad governments. There are good and bad masters. There are good and bad spouses. That doesn't alter how we live out our identity in this world. 
But what it does is it requires that we have a solid ground on which to stand. And so the vulnerability that this text requires of husbands and wives demands that we hope in something bigger, that we hope in something more certain. And it's a quiet confidence in God in, in, the, in these words, it's, it's, a, it's a quiet confidence in God that produces in a woman the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit and enables her to submit to her husband's authority without fear that it will ultimately be harmful to her well-being or personhood because she knows that Jesus defines that for her and not her husband. A husband will never live for the good of his wife unless he knows that he is secure in Christ's love. And so if we're going to do this, we have to stand on the promise that our security and significance in Christ are true regardless of how our spouses respond to us. So what does this look like in our day? Our culture has largely moved on from many of the views held in the day of this text. So do we just kind of punt the whole thing as a, a reminder of days gone by? Yeah, like I, want to be, I want to be clear. I think the principles that we see in the text stand. But here's the interesting thing here. Peter doesn't give us specific applications of this. He doesn't say to us, here's what this looks like in, in any specific way. He doesn't affirm the way the culture thinks about it either, as we've seen, as we've thought about how what he says goes against cultural belief. Instead, I think he leaves it to each couple to work out what this looks like in their particular situation. So the principles are timeless. But the applications may look different. So what should drive our application of this text in terms of an action point, I think, is this particular thought. That standing on the perfect hope of Christ, good husbands, good wives, that is, husbands and wives that are seeking to correctly apply this text, focus their attention and their action on turning me to we. They focus their attention and their action on turning me upside down, turning me and the focus on me to the focus on we. See, good spouses are made as we look to Christ and then seek to live like Christ in service to one another. So listen, Christian husband, Christian wife, you've got to start your day, I think, with the assurance that you are perfectly loved and significant. Not because of what your spouse is going to do, but because of what Christ has done. If you're going to have any chance of being for your spouse what you were called to be. And then we've got to decide to prayerfully seek out ways to inspire transformation in our husbands or wives. Now listen. Transformation is the job of the Spirit. It's not your job to transform your spouse. God never asks any spouse to carry the weight of another spouse's sanctification. But we know that God often uses us to bring about that transformation. 
And so we pray with persistence for our spouses. We pray regularly for them. And then we seek out ways to inspire and uplift them as we serve them like Christ. Sadly, uh, I've seen husbands and wives that, that couldn't see that they were killing the motivation in their husband or wife to get better. And they were killing it because they didn't think it was enough. God says, I, I, I think God says, we need to think about ways that we can inspire transformation as we pray for our spouses. There's no guarantee in this text that our spouse would see conversion or transformation, but we pray and we work to that end because God in his grace might just do a miracle. I want to say one more thing just to a couple of people who might be here today. First, there are those of you here today that long to do this. You long to be this kind of wife or this kind of husband as you follow the Lord Jesus, but who feel that it's gone unnoticed. Your spouse isn't responding the way you want him or her to respond. I just want you to know that even though society even though the culture around us, even though your spouse may not see you, that God sees you and that God loves you and that what you are doing in obeying his commands is precious in his sight because it looks like Jesus and he is cheering you on. So keep going in his grace. And second, to those of you who feel that you have fallen beyond repair, the fact is that we don't all experience the kind of oneness that God intends for marriage in this fallen world. The gospel, though, tells us that there is grace. There is grace. If your marriage has failed or if you are struggling to persevere, in a marriage that is less than ideal, or if you've had to flee an abusive relationship and perhaps feel shame about that, please understand that God loves you through it all. Would you lean in to his grace and his unfailing love through Christ, wherever you are right now? Because in the cross, there is hope for all of us. This text is not easy. As husbands, uh, as God calls uh, husbands and wives to live out a countercultural lifestyle that might make the gospel compelling to those around us, we stand on our new identity. But that new identity, it gives us the power to do the hard thing. It gives us the power to do what honors God. And so we believe that wives can win their husbands through their costly submission, that husbands can win their wives by their countercultural love and tenderness, that Christian husbands and wives can inspire transformation as they help their spouses feel the love of Christ that is theirs through faith. It's not easy. It's not easy. And so we look to the hope that is ours in Christ for the strength to see it happen. 
Truly, as Peter says in chapter 4, verse 19, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words because we all live so closely to the sin that is in us and to the sin that is around us. Father, we need your help to give us wisdom and to give us courage. Courage to stand when it feels difficult to stand. We need your grace, Father. We need your spirit to help us so that the things that come out of us would be the things of Christ and the things of the gospel. Father, please help us. Help us to be the kind of husbands and wives that you have called us to be. And Father, I pray for those that are genuinely seeking to be obedient to you in this matter, but whose spouses are just unresponsive. I pray, Father, that you would do a miraculous work. I pray, Father, that you would bring transformation within relationships. And Father, just, I'll say it for me. Would you let that transformation start with me? Help us, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.